Good afternoon, everyone. Um, it's a blessing to see you all today. Um, my name is Denzel. I'm one of the deacons here at Ecclesia. Um, <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> and um, we welcome you today. Welcome you guys from California. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I recognize it's, it's part of our worship to sit under the preach word of God. Um, so it is an honor to share with you today. Um, it is an honor I take uh, seriously and do so with fear and trembling. So, <laughs> yeah, a lot of trembling. So, <laughs> um, We've been going through the book of Philippians uh, these past months. Um, and the book of Philippians is a book about joy. Um, and, well, the series title is called Authentic Joy. So book, the book is about joy, authentic joy. Um, and as I go on, I, I, I think it will be helpful to define what joy means. Um, I'm going to be using words like joy, contentment, satisfaction. And they all kind of point to kind of a similar theme. And I suppose a definition or kind of a floating definition of those words as I use them is joy is a, a feeling of inner gladness that is based on spiritual realities and is independent of wavering physical circumstances. It does not come from favorable circumstances, but is God's gift to the believer. It is a true sense of assurance that ignites the cheerful heart of the believer who knows that all is well between himself and the Lord. So it's independent of wavering circumstances. It's a feeling of inner gladness. It doesn't come from circum good circumstances and is God's gift to the believer. So th this sense of joy is present throughout the whole book of Philippians that Paul has written to the Philippian church. Um, and in our text today, which is Philippians 4, verse 10 to 13, um, Paul speaks of joy in the frame of contentment and in God's power. So we're going to look at our passage today and highlight two of the main key, key points, which is living in contentment and God's power in the Christian life. So I'm going to read the text. If you could turn there with me, it's Philippians 4, verse 10 to 13. I'll give you a second to turn there and I'll read and then I'll pray. Okay. So, um, if you haven't got a Bible, you can read on the screen. So it says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen. Uh, let's pray. <clears throat> um, Lord Jesus Christ, we come to you humbly. Um, we recognize that you are king, you are God, you are sovereign over all things, Lord. And we realize and recognize our dependence upon you. Um, especially me as I share your word with your people. I pray your Holy Spirit would illumine the text to our hearts, Lord, that we wouldn't just read the text and look at it and then turn away and forget what it says. But I pray that we would look at this text, be impacted by your Holy Spirit, and that we would turn away um, looking more to Jesus and looking more to his contentment and his truth. I pray that you would let your Holy Spirit rest upon this, on this room now, Lord, that you would allow that everyone um, 
would look to Jesus Christ. That is your role as a third person of the Holy, of the Holy Trinity, that you, you glorify Christ. So help us, Lord, to through you glorify Christ also. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so in verse 10, Paul is nearing the end of his letter to the Philippian church. Um, he rejoices because they've been able to give him a gift, and by gift he means material support, so it's most likely money. Um, and he's grateful to them, or he's grateful for them. In Philippians 1, 3 to 4, he says they, they partnered with him until the, or he, they partnered with him in the first day of the gospel until now. In chapter 4, verse 15, they're the only church that partnered with him, and no other church did. So he's, he's very grateful to them, and he rejoices in their gift. But at the same time, he isn't soliciting for himself more gifts. He's not um, going on to ask for more. And in this context, what makes that so significant is that he's in prison. You know, we've known of, of these past weeks that Paul is in prison. Um, and this begs the question, why isn't he asking for more? If he's in such a kind of a dire need, why isn't Paul asking for more, for more gifts? He's not writing from a, from a quiet study with, a, with some coffee. He's in prison. And he's not in prison like, you know, prison today where you've got a PlayStation and, you know, um, a football pitch and three meals a day. Um, the type of prison that he's in is, is one that doesn't necessarily provide you daily food. And so, so if, he, if he needs food, if he wants food, he has to rely upon others to give it to him. But in the next verse, in verse 12, he doesn't go on to ask for more. He's thankful and he rejoices, but at the same time, he isn't reliant upon them to give him gifts because he says in whatever situation he is, he's learned to be content. Now, the word content is a Stoic term, and the Stoics um, were like a bunch of philosophers who adhered to the philosophy that every resource for coping with life is found within the human being, um, and it's, it's characterized by emotional resilience. So, and, and the word content means to be self-sufficient or self-reliant, and that is to need no outside help um, when dealing with hard situations. So Paul, instead of saying, give me more gifts, is saying, I am content. We have to understand, however, that he isn't using it in the same way that the Stoics used it. He's not just hearkening to emotional resilience. In verse 12 and 13, he says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him, that is Christ, who strengthens me. So Paul's contentment is not based upon his physical circumstances. Um, it isn't based on what's happening to him, because he shows us that he can be content in different states. He knows how to be brought low, which, is, or which literally means to be humbled, to be hungry, to be poor, sitting in prison. But he knows how to abound, that is to have more than enough and to be in abundance. He's learned the secret of facing life's ever-changing situations. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, in that context, what that means is that in order to be content throughout all of these things, he doesn't have to be a stoic. He doesn't have to have emotional resilience or flexibility. You know, he's not saying to the Philippians, I'm strong and I'm able to deal with these situations because there is something within me that is able to help me to deal with it. He's saying, whether you give to me or not, I am content because it is Jesus that enables me to hunger while incarcerated. It is Jesus that enables me to, to live even though I'm not even sure if anyone's bringing me food. It is Jesus that helps me 
um, while I'm awaiting the news of either my freedom or my execution. And therefore, he roots his strength not in a self-sufficient or self-based attitude. Rather, his sufficiency is in Christ. Christ gives him the strength to bear what's going, whatever he's going through. Through his spirit, Christ is able to infuse him with the ability to be content in the easiest of moments, but also in the hardest of situations and circumstances. So with that, we're going to move forward. And I have two points. That is contentment and God's power. So we're going to look at contentment. Um, now, whether we care to admit it or not, we all want contentment. We're all seeking for contentment. We all want that thing that makes us to feel full and give us peace of mind. We generally spend our lives trying to get to that place where things are under our control and things are going good for us and they're going how we want them to go. And among people in the West, um, the general attitude is to do whatever you want in order to attain or to achieve that contentment. So then contentment, as it translates to us, is that it is a sufficiency that is based upon the degree to which we perceive that our wants and our needs are being met. That's the standard, you know, I'm not happy until I get what I want. So then, away, so then typically, um, this is found in the West at least, in the most obvious place, and that's financial security. Um, I think that's the pinnacle of what, one, what makes one content. It's almost, as one, it's almost as if one's contentment is in direct proportion to their payslip. You know, money becomes our sufficiency, it becomes our security. And, you know, we want to have enough to get that mortgage or to maintain that lifestyle or to go on holiday at least three times a year, you know. Another one that we find contentment in is relationship and relationships and marriage, you know, and finding that partner. And, you know, if they don't tick our boxes, then it's on to the next one. We don't really, you know. <laughs> and, you know, for many people, being married means that they've arrived at a, at a certain place where they feel that they're secure. And having that perfect wedding means that, you know, they're full. That's where people find contentment in. And people find contentment in a lot of different places. They find it in their careers. People find contentment in exercise and health, in body image. You know, people will surgically modify their bodies and their faces in order to feel content. Um, social media is a big one nowadays, that people are willing to present their lives in a certain way in order to feel content or show people that I'm, I'm fine, I'm content. People look for contentment in fun and exhilarating circum um, experiences. People find it in partying and drinking. In our culture, uh, a prevalent one is that people find solace in sexual orientation and gender identity. People look in their friends and drugs and various kinds of sexual activity and, you know, even just living a life of comfort and ease. All of these things are things that we look to contentment for. Now, when we listen to that list, we have to ask the question, can these things provide us genuine contentment? Can we find a real soul-satisfying contentment in these things? When we envision our lives and plan our lives, do we expect that these things are to deliver the kind of satisfaction that our soul needs? And the answer ultimately should be no, because true sustaining contentment isn't in a list of wants. It can't be found in simply good or comfortable circumstances because life is far too wavering, it's far too unpredictable for us to have our joy and our satisfaction set in one thing. 
The fact is, if we look to good circumstances for our joy, when those circumstances change, then so does our joy, so does our contentment. If my contentment is attached to a particular way that I want my life to be set up, if life doesn't fulfill those expectations, where is my joy? What happens when that big fancy wedding, um, after the big fancy wedding day, you go home and marriage isn't what you expected it to be? What happens when the market crashes and your 50K turns to 50P? Hmm. <laughs> what happens when you have the money, but you're still depressed? So you can't enjoy it. And even one that I've had to think about personally is what if you just want to live a normal life, but you're prevented to do so because of different circumstances? You know, you're not trying to be extravagant. Where does our contentment come from? If we look to contentment and sufficiency in temporal things or in living a life with a set of circumstances that suits our wants, if that's your goal in life, you will find that it is unable to provide a long-lasting sense of joy or contentment. So then we have to ask the question, if we can't find contentment in these things, where is it that we're supposed to be looking? Let's take another look at the text. In, um, in the letter of Philippians, Paul is right into the Philippians and he's full of joy. He is content. But he's in prison. He's hungry. He's thirsty. What's worse is that he hasn't committed a punishable crime. He's preaching the gospel. He's actually spreading love, yet he's receiving negativity from that. Yet he's writing about how full of joy he is. How is that possible? I personally, if I was reading the letter, I'd think he's delusional and you know, I'm not really sure if he's, if he's all, all the way with it. You know, he's in prison, all saying how happy he is. I wouldn't, I'm not sure I believe him. But that's the thing. Paul isn't deluded about his situation. He's not ignoring what is happening to him. And that is because true contentment is not a complacency or a false peace that is based on ignorance of what's really going on. Paul is aware of his situation throughout his life, and he acknowledges it. You know, he says very well in our text that he's in prison. Even in other texts, we see that Paul is a very aware person. In 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 28, you know, we see that he's aware of what's happening. He says, I have served him far more, him being God. He says, I have worked harder and been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. He remembers his lashes. He's not ignorant of what's going on. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced dangers from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the, in the deserts, on, on the seas. And I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked hard and long and during many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty, and I've often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warmed. And besides all this, I have this daily burden of my concern for all the churches. Paul is very clearly aware of what's going on and what's happening in his life. Yet he remains content. And that's because his contentment, his source of rest, even in adverse circumstances, irrespective of what's going on, is placed in Jesus Christ. Christ is his contentment. Christ is his sufficiency. 
You know, he has a clear tunnel vision focus on Jesus Christ. So therefore, Christ is the ultimate ground and goal of his contentment, not his circumstances. And it's all over the book of Philippians. In chapter 1, verse 12 to 13, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become throughout the whole imperial guard or known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He's happy that he's in prison because people are hearing the gospel of Christ because Christ is that, sent, that, that joy. In verse 20 of chapter 1, he says, It is with my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul has a central passion and aim in his life to glorify Christ in his life, in his living, but as well as in his death. Chapter 1, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For Paul to live is Christ, that is to gain Christ, to glorify Christ, and to die is to gain more of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 27, he calls the Philippians to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. In chapter 2, verse 5 to 11, he encourages them that in order to have meaningful unity, you have to have the same, um, same humility as Christ. And then he outlines Christ's humility and his exhaltation. In chapter 3, verse 3, he says, Glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. For salvation, he relies on Christ. And in chapter 3, verse 7 to 9, and here's where I believe a lot of the secret is founded in, the secret of verse 12. Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. For Paul, everything else is worthless and rubbish in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Though his situation is dreadful, his situation isn't the focus for him. The focal point, the objective of his contentment is Christ. It's the person of Christ, who he is. It's the work of Christ, what he's done. There is a distinct contentment and joy that Paul is experiencing there that we too, as believers, can tap into. And that's because this comes from the fact that Jesus is the glorious, all-sufficient savior of those who believe in him. In the gospel, God shows us the riches of his gracious mercy to ruin sinners, which is us even though we didn't deserve it. Naturally, we are rebels against our creator. We break his commandments and we seat ourselves on his throne. We make ourselves God. We don't de desire God. We don't desire to know God. You know, scripture says that we have all turned away. We've all turned aside from him and do not do good. And God is a just and righteous God. Therefore, God's good wrath, it might sound weird me saying his good wrath, but it is justly deserved. His good wrath abides upon all who sin because our sin deserves punishment. But like I said, God is rich in mercy and he is great in his grace. And he sent Jesus to live a sinless, obedient life that we couldn't live. Instead of us taking the deserved wrath of God, Jesus stood in our place and took our sin upon himself. God poured out his unabated wrath upon Jesus Christ 
and he died, but he resurrected three days later in glory, having paid the full penalty of sin. And he displays that he was indeed God in the flesh. And now he lives to redeem us from our sin and delivers us from our sinful ways. And he calls us to repent. And to repent means to turn away from our sin and turn toward him. And he calls us to believe in him. That is to put our full trust in his work and what he's done for us. He is our only savior. In salvation, we are not self-sufficient. We're not stoic. We don't rely upon ourselves. The only way to be right with God is to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. It's not simply by going to church. It's not by doing good deeds. It's not by listening to worship music. It's not by reposting Christian posts on your Instagram or Twitter. It's not by feeling deep emotions. It's not by being born into a Christian family or having Christian traditions. It's not by thinking you're a good person. Those things don't save you. The only thing that can save you is by believing and trusting in the name that is above every other name, and that is Jesus. Salvation is in no other but in Jesus. So in here, in the gospel, we don't have to try and be self-reliant because we, because we rest not on our own works to save us, but we trust in his work to save us. And this is the best news for anyone. This is the most important news. It's not just a nice story because it completely resolves the issue of of our eternal fate. And in this good news, we are content and satisfied. Many people who see Christianity say, you know, I've seen a saying that said, heaven is a place where nothing happens. But that's not true, because Jesus doesn't just save us and leave us to it, to twiddle our thumbs. He cares deeply about our contentment. When he saves us, he opens the eyes of our blind hearts that we may see him and See him for who he is and what he's done. And he completely shifts the heart's focus to its proper place. And that's on him. Because he realizes and he knows that contentment is found nowhere else but in him. The world and all it has to offer can at most give us good things. It cannot give us the ultimate things. Jesus, on the other hand, offers us eternal life. He offers us true hope. He offers us true love and true peace and goodness and joy once we are his. Spurgeon says, It is a wonderful proof of our Savior's deep attachment to his people that having made their salvation sure, he is also anxious concerning their present state of mind. He wishes that his people should not only be safe, but happy, that they should not only be saved, but that they should rejoice in his salvation. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will we not also with him graciously give us all things? I've heard people use that verse and miss the point. They go to the second, the second clause and say, God will give us all things. But they miss the point that essentially he already did. He gave us himself. He gave us Jesus Christ. He gave us his greatest expense. There is nothing greater that God can give us than Jesus Christ. And in him are all things for us to enjoy and have, glor- and have joy and glory in. And Jesus himself makes it clear that he is a true satisfaction. In John 6, 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In John 4, 14, he says, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. 
Psalm 16:11 says, In your presence, that is in God's presence, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Who is at God's right hand in Ephesians 1:20? That's Jesus. Jesus in and of himself is the sweet and complete, perfect, ultimate satisfaction for the longing of our souls. Nothing else. And he offers himself freely to us. And what is more amazing is that not only does he offer himself freely to us, but it's the fact that we don't deserve it. Amen. He doesn't owe us anything. He is God. He is Yahweh, the supreme Elohim. He doesn't owe us anything. Yet he wants to come to us and give us his joy that we may be content and satisfied by his love and his grace. And we can only experience this joy when we genuinely know Jesus and are truly known by him. And I want to expand on that, but before I do, I think it will be good to talk about where we go wrong in that contentment and where we go wrong in our understanding. What is a real shame is that many believers don't see Jesus in this way. They don't see him as their contentment. And because of that, they become ungrateful and forgetful. They become distracted and discontent with God because they don't realize his goodness. For many who profess Christ, Jesus is not their actual source of contentment. He is more of an, an add-on to their lives. Good, thanks. He's more of a cherry on top of what is believed to already be an already, already well-crafted life. And he only serves the purpose of appeasing people's religious conscience. People don't want to trust in Jesus or have him involved in their lives because they already have predetermined plans as to how their lives want to be set up. You know, we see it like God can deal with our salvation and then the rest of our lives we have to ourselves and we can deal with it. People look at God as an option rather than a necessity. On the flip side, I think people don't see Jesus for who he is because they are going through hard circumstances and they, don't, they focus so much on their circumstance that they don't realize that Jesus is there for them and that he's actually pointing himself back to himself. He's pointing them back to himself. At evangelism a few uh, months ago, I was speaking to a woman um, and I asked her, what, you know, do you believe in God? Is there a God you believe in? And she, she answered quite hesitantly and told me about how hard her life was and how she didn't make enough money or, and so on and so forth. And she didn't actually answer my question if she believed in God. So I asked again, I was like, you know, do you believe in God? And she said, yeah, but it was really unsure. And that was because she had perceived her life so hard, as, or life as so hard, that she didn't believe that God, or she struggled to believe that God even existed. You know, we're, we're so quick that once things aren't going our way and we don't feel content, we're able to almost fizzle God out of existence. So both whether in a, in a place of abundance or at a, at a high place or a low place, the lack of contentment comes from the attitude of not thinking that God is enough for us. And that shows in our lives and how we live. And that, you know, it's, it's a shame to say it, it, it even seeps into us as a church and, you know, it seeps into the life of the church. You know, many people don't find Christ worthy, so they don't live lives that reflect his worth. You know, we aren't inclined to always worship and sing to him because, if we're honest, we don't find him worth, worth worshiping. We don't find him worth singing to. We don't read the Bible because we don't 
view Christ's word as necessary for life. It's not that important. This is, this is, a, this is an ouchie. We, we, we aren't inclined to serve because we don't view Christ as worth serving. We aren't inclined to evangelize. Mikey views on you. <laughs> we aren't inclined to evangelize because Christ isn't that worth sharing. You know, and these are all potential symptoms of a heart that is disinterested in God because we don't believe that he's enough. And that's not a light matter. It's, it's actually sin. You know, discontentment with God is, is much more dangerous than we think because it makes us idolatrous. It, it causes our hearts to cultivate other gods in order to place trust in them instead of God. You know, we look in the book of Genesis. You see Adam and Eve living in the perfect presence of God, walking with God, fellowshipping with God. In all the contentment that his, and joy that he provides. And then the serpent deceives Eve into thinking that other things can give her more contentment than God can. And they listen to the serpent. And in the end, they aren't satisfied. They get sin and death, you know, than which we still currently experience. You know, discontentment is not a light thing. It is insidious. It creeps upon the heart and it captures it like venom. It causes us to be idolatrous and in doing so, it turns our hearts away from God and we turn to murmuring and grumbling against God. And it may not even be verbal, but it can show up in our hearts. We see this in the people of Israel as God was taking them from the wilderness or from Egypt to the wilderness to the land that he promised them. And they weren't content in him. On the way there, they complained the whole time. On numerous occasions, they complained there was no food. God should have just killed us in Egypt. Now, why did he bring us out here? And then God graciously gives the manna to eat. And after that, they're still not content because they're still complaining. They complain there's no water. God should have just killed us in Egypt. But yet again, he provides water for them. They complain again. There's no meat. <laughs> the vegans didn't say amen. <laughs> there's no meat to the point where the scriptures say it's coming out of their noses. And they still complain against him because they weren't content in him. Now, now asking for water and food is, is not troublesome to God. You know, just like with our own desires, coming to the Lord is not a problem. He invites us to come to him. But how easily did they forget that he took them from the land of Egypt, that he rescued them from oppression and from slavery? They didn't trust in him to bring them to the, to the land that he promised them, even though he showed them through his acts and through his words that he was going to do it. Instead, they refused to rest in him and were discontent. And one of the wonderful things about Scripture is that it shows us a picture of ourselves. Are we like Adam and Eve who are deceived into thinking that other things can provide more contentment than Jesus? Are we like the Israelites who are so discontent with God and forget and neglect God's grace and his promises and go to complain instead? Or are we more like Paul who holds Jesus as the object of his contentment despite his circumstances and aim only to be content in Christ? I pray that we become the latter. So after all that, the question I ask is, how can we be content? And my answer is that we must look to Jesus. We must look to Jesus. And practically, since we love it practical here, is 
I think it first means some self-assessment. You, know, you have to take a look at your own life and, and think, what is it that I put my trust in to make me happy and content that isn't Jesus? What is your heart set on? What do you find most value in? What do you spend time fixated on? What do you prize and treasure the most? If Christ is not the focal point, object or goal in answering those questions, that is a problem that needs to be addressed. Bo Hughes of the Village Church says, discontentment is not just a respectable sin that we can deal with here and there. It is something that needs to be killed in us. We have to kill the idea that things matter more or that we can rely on other things more than we can rely on Jesus. Because it stems from lies from the devil and lies from our own sinful nature and lies from the world. We can truly experience contentment in our daily lives and experience joy when we center our life's focus on Jesus Christ. If we indeed call ourselves Christians and say we believe in Jesus and that we have the conviction that he is Lord and that he died and he rose from the grave and he lives in us through his spirit, we have to be at a place where Christ is genuinely our truest desire in all things. But how do we get to that place? We get there by looking to Jesus, knowing him, making his truth our own because he has made us our, his own. The Westminster Catechism says that our chief purpose as God's creation made in his image is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. How is it that we enjoy him? We enjoy him when we know him. And this knowing isn't just knowing about him or having great theological knowledge or just knowing the story of the gospel, but it is knowing Jesus Christ relationally, experientially, intimately. And we can do this through two ways, and that is consistently being in and immersing yourself in God's word. And it's by, through, and it's by regular, authentic communion with him in and through prayer. Christ becomes our contentment and our treasure when we open up his word. His word is the holy, glorious God revealing himself to us, showing us who he is, showing us his nature, his personhood, what he likes, what he doesn't like, or that we might know him and be content and satisfied in him. Without his word, we don't know who he is. Without his word, we don't know who we are. We don't just read it, but we intentionally meditate on it. That is calling it to mind, thinking it over and over, talking to people about it. You know, fellowship isn't just coming and telling people about your week. It's talking about God's word. <laughs> we have to look into God's word and study it and make sure we know what it means and see his promises and believe his promises and Find out and figure out what is the Lord saying to me right now. We must rejoice in the fact that he cultivated, inspired, and created a book through men over thousands of years that he might completely interact with us and communicate with us and show us who he is. That he may be our God and that we may be his people and that his word will reside in our hearts. Paul says in Philippians 4.8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. 
what is more true and honorable and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise than the living word of God? Paul says, think of these things, think on these things, and the peace of God will be with you. In God's word, we learn the unsearchable riches of Christ, especially as we learn of how the gospel applies to us. Because it's in God's word that we find that our sins have been forgiven. It's in his word that we find that we've been declared righteous because another has borne our punishment. It's in his word that we learn that we have the spirit as a seal of our salvation. And it's in his word that Jesus will return and he will come again and we will be like him. It is here that we find contentment. Because what is more important than the truth of the gospel? There's no point in life at which the gospel isn't good news for us, no matter what you're going through. I quote Spurgeon again in his commentary on Psalm 23, and he says, He makes me to lie down in green pastures. What are these green pastures but the scriptures of truth, always fresh, always rich, and never exhausted? Sweet and full are the doctrines of the gospel, fit food for souls as tender grass is natural nutriment for sheep. When by faith we are enabled to find rest in his promises, and when we lie down in the midst of the pasture, we find at the same moment both food and peace, both rest and refreshment, serenity and satisfaction. When you read the Bible and gaze upon Christ and who he is, we will become gripped by Jesus and the beauty of his love and the things of this world, the things that we once looked to for hope and contentment will grow strangely dim in comparison to the light of knowing Christ. And this leads into our second way of knowing Christ and that's through prayer. We must first receive Christ through his word because we ought to know the one that we pray to and as we know him, we see that his love is steadfast and we can trust in his promises and that we get to cast our cares upon him we get to praise and thank him and glorify him. We get to respond to him in obedience because he conforms us to his will through prayer. When we, when we become discontent with all that is around us, we look to God for fellowship. And, you know, prayer isn't a means to get exactly what we want to make us content. Rather, Jesus is exactly what we want to make us content. That's why we look to him and go to him in prayer. He is our contentment. And he is our contentment above all things and in any and every circumstance. And as we find the more that we do that, there actually develops in us, in us a righteous discontentment. And being so content with God, we realize that our present bodies, our sinful bodies, we, we, we can't experience God to the full. And we yearn for that day that we can fully experience God. It's an attitude that is like in Psalm 42, verse 1 to 2. And he says, As the deer pants for, for water brooks, so my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. That's that discontentment that though we are being content by him, we yearn for more of him. Psalm 63, verse 1 to 4, it says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no power, as, oh, wow, power, there is no water. <laughs> so I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift my hands. 
This kind of attitude doesn't come from a, from a shallow relationship with the Lord. It doesn't come from walking casually with God and coming to church and singing a little and hearing a good word and going home and living how you were living anyway. We have to pursue a true heart for the Lord that says, I want to take him seriously because he is Lord. It's the heart that says, I am hungry for more of him and will continue to actively pursue him at all costs, in all situations, seeking to know him deeply, not being content with the fact that he's just part of my life. I want him to be all of my life. All of our affairs and situations, our friends and our families, our goals, our ambitions, our wants and our needs, all of them are not where we find contentment. They are to be placed in submission to God, and they are only to exist as planets that orbit around the sun. But they are not the sun themselves. Christ is that sun. Christ is the unchanging center. And like Paul, even though we go through various seasons and times, though we go through the highs of physical happiness and success or the lows of depression and drama and pain, our contentment is not rooted in those things. It's not rooted in the seasons. It's rooted in the sun that is faithful every day, rising every day, and that is Christ. And that's where we want to be in our contentment with Christ. But in order to live a, a satisfied life like this, we have to hearken to a strength that is not naturally within ourselves. We need a strength that we cannot muster up. And here we enter into the second, my second point, which is about God's power. Um, Philippians 4.13, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, when I hear that verse, I think, I think of all the Ghanaian churches I grew up in when someone didn't have a job or they had an exam or some race at school, and then they're like, yeah, you, know, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. <laughs> this verse is one that is widely taken out of context. It's taken to mean whatever I set my mind to, whatever my ambition is, that I can do through Christ who strengthens me. It's used as a motivational quote to help people achieve their goals. It's used for beating, un, for beating unwant, unwelcome circumstances or difficult situations. And that doesn't seem so bad, but there's a fundamental issue in interpreting the verse in that way. And the problem lies in the fact that it widely ignores the surrounding context, and it just becomes a great slogan. We know the context is that is about contentment, and that it's about Paul, who's in prison, you know, and he's talking about contentment through either advantageous or adverse circumstances. So what does it really mean? I have two observations about the verse. Paul can be content, this is the first one, Paul can be content in any and all of his circumstances, whether good or bad, because Christ, as the object of Paul's salvation and contentment, empowers Paul to endure the circumstances that God allows him to be in. If this verse was merely you can put whatever you, you put your mind to, or you can do whatever you put your mind to through Christ, you'd have to wonder why is Paul still in prison? Why wouldn't he, if he can do all things, just smack up the guard and come out? <laughs> but that isn't Paul's point. The all things is restrained by the context because this verse speaks to more of God giving power to endure each circumstance not necessarily get out of it or be successful in the world's terms. 
We see a similar instance with Paul again. I go back to 2 Corinthians 12. Paul has a thorn in his flesh. He is harassed by a messenger of Satan and he pleads with God that he should remove it. And we aren't told that God removes it. However, we are told that Christ replies to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 to 10. And it says, but he said to me, that is Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul then says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We see that Paul isn't necessarily removed from his hard circumstance because he's still in prison. You know, we don't get a release date. Paul isn't like, I'm coming out in 64 AD, see you, man, later. <laughs> in 2 Corinthians, he still has the thorn in the flesh and he's still given grace to go through it, though. We're not told the thorn is taken out, but we're told that he's given grace to go through it. And in both cases, Paul lays no claim on his own ability to deal with these hard situations. Rather, it is Jesus that gives him strength to endure. That's the first observation. The second observation is that Paul isn't here saying, through Christ who strengthens me to do fantastical and miraculous things like raising the dead or walking on water. You know, you know a new one is when one person's leg is shorter than the other and they extend it to make it you know, the same length. That isn't the kind of power that Paul is talking about here. He's saying, because Christ strengthens me, I can be in prison. He's talking about being empowered by God to do something so undesirable and unattractive. And that's a hard thing. That's why you have to learn the secret of it in verse 12. But again, that secret is also found in Jesus. Because Jesus did the undesirable and the unattractive. It's easy for us to recognize the power of God when we see Jesus walking on water and raising the dead and all his miracles. And as we who believe in him, we say yes and amen to those things. God is the supreme, all-powerful, majestic ruler of the universe, sovereign over all the elements. So we say yes and amen to those things. But we must almost say yes and amen to those undesirable things. We must say yes and amen to Jesus in Philippians 2. Behold the power of God that in his infinite majesty he became low, he humbled himself. Amen. The same word that Paul uses in Philippians 4 verse 12 when he says, I know how to be brought low. He emptied himself, becoming like his own creation and being humbly obedient to the point of death. Behold the power of God that he was beaten and killed by his own creation, who he clearly could have decimated in milliseconds. Like in, in Matthew 26, 53, he says, Jesus is about to be arrested and he says, Do not think I can appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. Yet behold his power that he didn't do that and he took the undesirable and he humbly took the punishment on our behalf. And we are to be like him, obediently submitted to God, humble living for God's glory in and through the undesirable times, even in and through undesirable ways. And we can do this because by virtue of our living union and identification with Christ, He is our strength. When we are placed in difficult situations and God allows us to go through many circumstances, we embrace or we must embrace an attitude 
of utter dependence on God. Through everything that has happened, is happening, and will happen, we have to trust in him and look to him for strength. And practically, what, might that, what that might look for you, um, I quote John Piper, and he gives a helpful way that we can go through in those situations. And he says, admit that you can do nothing. Pray for God's help in what you're going through. Trust in his promises, in his word, that he will offer help. And then in that faith, in that trust, act and continue to endure in whatever it is that you're going through. And thank God for the grace that he, helped, that he graciously gives. In his strength and in his strength alone, we can say, I can do all things. And with where we're at as a church, I was thinking of some things that, you know, how, how does that play out for us? Um, as we seek to be a, a healthy church, equipped to disciple and faithful on mission, how can we do those things that may seem undesirable? And we have to operate in God's strength. We can say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Through Christ, we can faithfully plug into the church and get more of him and care about fellowship with his people. Through Christ, we can forgive our brothers and sisters that have wronged us and to rebuild true loving relationships and be in unity. Through Christ, we can be open about our struggles and get real accountability. Through Christ, we can be patiently single, even though we want a husband or wife, yet remain faithful to God and not to try and find ways around being obedient to God. Through Christ, we can love our spouses and honor them and live out our wedding vows. Through Christ, we cannot let work or money take God's rightful place. Through Christ, we can read our Bibles and pray to God on a frequent basis. Through Christ, we can worship him when we're among the saints, but also individually. Through Christ, we can go to evangelism and preach the gospel to lost people. Through Christ, we can obey him when temptation is lurking around us. Through Christ, we can be sick or unwell, and, but trust that God is still with us. As a church, through Christ, even in such a weird time, we can have the same mind, the same goal, which is to glorify Christ, especially at our own inconvenience and expense. Through Christ, we can be united and forgiven and loving. And these aren't crazy, fantastical things, but we need God's power for them. The same spirit that caused Jesus to walk on water, we need his power to live a life of, as, as Christians. And we can only do this by setting our eyes on the one that saved us with his blood and trusting in his promises and responding to his truth and ultimately knowing him and growing more in knowledge of him. As I draw to a close, I was thinking about an illustration that would be helpful. Um, and I couldn't really think of one um, or find one. You know, I wanted an illustration to show about being content in God and being content in his strength. And yeah, I couldn't find any. So I had to look, up, I had to look at my own life and thought, maybe I should share my own life and be intentional about living out what, what I've written in the sermon. Um, and I hate talking about myself. 
but I thought maybe transparency is helpful in a time like this. Um, if you know me and my wife, Chloe, um, she has uh, a chronic condition that leaves her in constant pain. And there's many times where it's really bad and I, as a, her partner and carer, can only watch. Um, I can't do anything to help. You know, and I see how you know, debilitating it is for, for her and for me. It's debilitating for her because her way of life, her lifestyle is restricted. Um, it's debilitating for me because I'm often, I'm often left helpless to give her any help. And it makes me wonder, it makes me think, you know, sometimes, like, God, what are you doing? What is the possible good that is really coming from this situation? You know, I don't understand, and it makes me feel discontent. It makes me feel like, it makes me grumble, like the Israelites. It makes me look to other things, like Adam and Eve. When I feel discontent, I don't feel joy in God, because the circumstances aren't as I would have them. You know, it's easy to say, Chloe's a Christian, I'm a Christian, Lord, why are you not taking, out, taking us out of the situation? You know, it's easy to say, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Chloe can do all things through Christ who strengthens her so she can just get better. But that's me taking the verse out of context. Because I miss, I miss the, verses, the verses beforehand. And this is where we understanding God's word is, is key. And I had to realize if my contentment, if Chloe's contentment is in Chloe getting better, what if that never comes? Will we never be content? Or what happens if that does come and she does get better? What happens if it goes? Am I going to be discontent and content and discontent again? So we have to change our minds upon it, like about this situation. You know, we don't want to live a discontented life where we're not focusing on, on Jesus. So we realize now that it is a hope that Chloe will get better. It is a hope because we both know that ultimately her being better doesn't guarantee either of our contentment. It doesn't guarantee soul satisfaction if Chloe doesn't have a condition. And that's why it's a hope. But the hope, the contentment that we look to is in Christ Jesus. He is the constant throughout all our circumstances. In the midst of the hardest moments, he is able to bring joy and make us content. He is able to strengthen us to endure hardships and to press on, look into him and only him. We don't trust God because life is easy. We don't trust God because life is going our way and everything is good. But we trust him because he is good. We don't find contentment because we are strong. We appeal to the strength that Christ empowers us with. So we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And in our lowest and most uncomfortable moments, in those absolutely painful moments, we can still be content. Because we realize that Jesus is the lover of our souls. He died on our behalf. He is a very present help in a time of trouble. And we trust in him because he's a mighty fortress. So I encourage you, find contentment in Christ. Only Christ can give our souls fulfillment and satisfaction. If you're doing great for yourself, good. If everything is looking great for you, good. But look to Christ. If you're in a dark time, 
Christ promises to give us strength to endure, so look to Christ. As believers, our contentment does not depend or come from our present circumstances. It is only found in Jesus Christ. Read of him in his word and lie down in the green pastures of his promises. Let him give joy to your soul. Let him give you the fellowship and satisfaction that you need in prayer and his word. Let him be your only source of strength. And through that, we can have authentic joy. We can have that feeling of inner gladness. We can have the, the spiritual reality that our joy is not based on our circumstances. We can realize that our, our circumstances don't come from favorable situations, but it's God's gift to us. So, be content in Christ, not anyone else, not in anything, not in your work, not in your talents, not in your families, not in your, not in your children, not in your whatever it is that you look to for contentment. Be content in Christ. Let's pray. Um, Lord, we thank you that you are the lover of our souls. You are the gracious God who gives us all things, and that all things is, is you, Lord. You are the king of the universe, yet you stooped so low in order that we might find contentment in you. You are holy, you are distinct, you are different, other than us, yet you came to us, became like us, that we may have salvation and that we might know you and know the surpassing worth of knowing you, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would cause us to have power with all the saints to comprehend the height and depth and length and love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that we wouldn't live lives of looking to contentment in other things, but we would look to you consistently, constantly at the sun as we know that the sun is faithful and it rises each day, so are you, Lord, that you are faithful to us and you give us your grace and your mercy. You help us to endure. It's not always the fantastical things or the miraculous or the things that the world calls successful that we, we glory in, Lord. We glory in the fact that you help us to go through hard circumstances. When our heart is weary and our soul is weak, you help us to continue in you and not to look necessarily for better circumstances or for better circumstance, but to know that you are our contentment. You are our satisfaction. You are our joy. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Pour your pleasures upon us, Lord, that we might not look to the world or look to other circumstances to make us happy, but that our happiness would be continually utterly rooted in you. Give us strength, Lord, as a church, individually. Help us to look to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.